Hello and welcome to the Helping Organisations Thrive podcast. This is your host, Julian Roberts. This podcast is to provide leaders with insights, discussions and robust strategies to help their companies thrive in these challenging times. We will be interviewing business leaders, owners and experts in the field of business resilience. Welcome to Helping Organizations Thrive. Uh, today, I have the, the pleasure of, of Jeff Harry. Uh, Jeff, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Yes, it's good to have you on. I know you were on our other podcast of Coaching Conversation with myself and Kerry, so it's great to have a, a double episode with you on my own podcast. So I appreciate you coming on. I'm just going to tell the audience a little bit about you. Uh, you are an international play speaker and positive psychology play coach. You're the founder of Rediscover Your Play, uh, which shows individuals, schools and organizations how to tap into their true selves to feel their happiest and most fulfilled all by playing. And you, you've worked with the likes of Google, Microsoft, um, Amazon, Facebook, uh, helping their staff to infuse more play into the day to day. And I'm sure today we are going to have a, a playful, fun time. And I love that you're wearing your Lego bow tie. I got my fancy bow tie for today. <laughs> this is great. So the question I always ask uh, every guest on the show, uh, just so we can get to know you a little bit more, is um, what do you love about uh, what you do? That's a great question. I think what I love most when I'm working with like a team at a Fortune 500 company is when they are willing to step outside their comfort zone. As I'm helping a lot of these teams navigate really difficult conversations, like how to deal with a toxic person at work, how to deal with office politics, how to have hard conversations. So when you see a team starting to do that, when you see them actually taking risks, you know, you see someone getting out of their shell, you know, and they're connecting with each other at a more authentic, psychologically safe level. That is... That's all. That's that's everything to me. You know, I remember running a workshop in Australia right before COVID. It was our dealing with toxic toxicity at work workshop. And people were like laughing and then crying in the same workshop because they they were connecting on the fact that many of them had left a, a company due to a toxic person. And they thought they were alone in that. And then all of a sudden they were meeting random strangers that were also had the same story. So bringing being able to facilitate that so people feel like they're not alone is really important to me. And wh when did you first realize that that's what you love, what you do, what you're doing today? Um. So I don't know. It's. Do you want to hear the Batman origin story? I could tell you the short version if that helps. The, the short. The short version would be good. That'd be good. So the short version is: I saw Big as a kid. You know, the movie Big with Tom Hanks. I started writing toy companies way back when, and I just didn't stop until I actually got into the toy industry 15 years later. Got dis got um uh, uh what is it? Uh disillusioned by it because there was no play, no fun, no toys, no happiness in the toy industry. I left New York, came to the San Francisco Bay Area, found an organization that was teaching kids engineering with Lego, but they were literally just playing for a living. And then I grew it from seven people to about 400 people. And we grew it into the largest Lego inspired STEM organization like in the US. And the whole time we were just playing, we were just making things up as we went along. We had no idea what we were doing. We were experimenting, we were testing stuff out. We picked cities we thought were fun. We had no business plan. We just played. 
But what was interesting is then we got the attention of Silicon Valley because we we're in the Bay Area, Facebook, Google, Adobe, a lot of the companies that you had mentioned. And they were like, do you do team building events? And we're like, yeah, of course we do, even though we didn't. And then for the next 10 years, I ran team building events for the top tech companies like in the world. But I found during all that time that they, at the same time, they spoke about disruption and innovation and taking risks. They had not created, in my opinion, psychologically safe work environments to do that. So I created Rediscover Your Play to help them navigate a lot of those conversations um, because I was like, I was just tired of doing team building events and forced fun because I hate forced fun, right? Like, you know, all these like trust fall exercises. And I was like, no, let's actually have real conversations because mm -hmm. that like studies have shown that the most psychologically safe teams are the ones that prefer, perform the best. Mm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's when you discovered this is what I like doing, combining this play, which is your, your childhood dream of working for a, a toy company. Uh, so you had play at the, at the sort of heart of your mission, I guess, has always been there and it's brought out in a way that now helps organizations overcome other toxic situations or help with tough conversations. Now we've had a bit of a, a strange time at the moment. I think we're still in this really um, uh, weird time where people are in multiple lockdowns or working from home and work's become really quite, I think, difficult sometimes either to keep people engaged, mm -hmm. motivated and everything else. And I, I just want to ask you, how, how can we use what you're doing using, using play in the context of remote working? Cause I, I think, you know, I know you do workshops, which I they're all in, in person using Lego and various other things I'm sure you use. How do we create that sort of, I guess, greater place to work? in a context of a remote working? I think we have to realize that culture is even more important now that we're remote. I've been talking to more and more leaders that are speaking to their staff less rather than more. And that's, that's an issue. And I'm not talking about like, you know, meetings for the sake of meetings. Like what, one of the best leaders I met, he has lunch with his team like every few days. That's all they do. They don't talk about work they just have lunch together like as a team on a, on a zoom on a zoom on, a zoom, on zoom it's like yeah. and just because that was the culture he had before so mm. i think that each team leader especially in the hr space has to be thinking about what are we doing around culture to consistently keep that culture especially because you know gallup did a study that found that 85 percent of people were disengaged at work before remote remote so so me people are looking for jobs right now right mm. so if you want to re-engage your staff one of the biggest suggestions that i give people is to reach out to your staff members and ask them simply what is the work that they love to do most what is the work where they forget about time mm. what is their flow work what is their red thread work what is their zone of genius work as as uh gay hendrix refers to it and, and then once you find that out, okay, how much or what percentage of time are you currently doing that work? Oh, you're only, you're only speaking to clients for 10% of the time, even though that's the work that you love doing most and you thrive mm -hmm. at. How can we turn that from 10% to 15%? 
because studies have also shown that when they're doing that flow work, it has a ripple effect on all their other work. They're highly more productive and much more engaged, right? Mm. And you just have to look to organizations like Google that did something like the 20% rule or the 20% program, where they gave their staff a fifth of their time to pursue things that they thought interest them, that they were curious about, mm. right? This was, this was like, I think, just their Friday for a few hours a week. And what came from the Google 20% program? AdSense. Google Meet, Gmail, like they're some of their biggest innovations that basically they built their billion dollar, you know, company on came from that. I get, I recognize that a lot of companies are like, I can't give a fifth of my time to my staff. I barely have time right now. No, I was going to ask, ask that question. You know, if you're a smaller company, yeah. say, I don't know, 50, even a hundred staff. And how do you get those people who, you know, get them into the zone zone of genius, the, the sort of place where they really thrive in their current role. And you actually, that means an absolute overhaul. How can we, is there any other things we can do to create that motivation? Well, you can still carve out a little bit of that time, right? Like do an inventory of what they spend their time on mm. and really actually see what they actually, what they do. You know, I, I was, I was, I've been fascinated with the eight hour work day, Right. Because I'm like, where does it come from? Why do we have an eight-hour workday? You know, and it was invented in like 1817 by this Welsh labor activist and and uh, you know, uh, business owner named Robert Owen. Um, eight hours of work, eight hours of leisure, eight hours of sleep. Right, but then no one touched it, at least in the U.S. till 1926 when Henry Ford implemented it, and he only implemented it because uh, we they were right in the middle of a depression and they couldn't get a lot of their uh, workers, their workers were working 10, 15, 20 hours and then just dying on the job. So he was like, all right, I'm going to do an eight hour workday. I'm going to double everyone's salary, caused a huge ruckus, but that's how he was able to get all these people to come to work. Right. But since then, no one's even looked at what the eight hour workday is. Are we still productive or not? And um, a lot of studies have now found that most people in an eight hour workday can only focus and do quality work for two hours and 51 minutes of that day. So you know that if you two hours and 51 minutes, <laughs> two hours and 51 minutes. And even, and in the U S our workday is extended. So now it's 8.8 .8 hours. We actually work even more according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. So what are people doing for like five and a half hours? You know, they're doing um, meetings that are a waste of time, mm -hmm. right? They are doing work that is not only a waste of time, but they're doing work to prove that they're doing work. The amount of people I've met that are making reports to show all how productive they are, mm -hmm. you know, it's just it's just more wasted work. There's a lot of wasteful work that mm -hmm. we're doing just to stay busy so that we, you know, can justify our jobs instead of really being like, if I only can give. If, if my staff can only do three hours of quality work a day, what work do I want them to focus on, right? Mm -hmm. And let me actually look through their entire workday and figure out what it is that will maximize their output and their productivity while also getting them to do the thing they love to do most so that they stay engaged and they're less likely to leave. 
Absolutely. And, that, and there's some real valid points, I think, on that sort of eight hours of, of working and where it's come from, why it's there. And, it's, and I talk a lot of my clients about creating more having impacts as opposed to in terms of results rather than right. your what you're doing. Yes, you have to do things to create the impact, to create the results, but measure yourself more on the outputs of those results as opposed to I spent 10 hours doing this, eight hours doing this. Mm-hmm. Now, I know in the remote working world, I think some people are probably starting to work longer or at least stretching their work days with the challenging of the, of the homeschooling yeah. or just jumping on something in the evening just to finish something off. And almost they're not really switching off in that context. So, so how do we, I suppose, help organizations through this play bringing play into the sort of equation how, how do we bring play and how are you how are you doing these sort of play sessions now with in the remote context are you doing it in the remote context i mean that's that's a, so be interesting to understand because I, I think there's, there's something about play and i'd love you to tell the audience how play helps us psychologically but also what aspects of of you you're doing in the remote context of play that really helps drive um sort of productivity engagement right, and right. So, so first off, you know, let me define play, right? So play, at least how I define it, um, is any a joyful action where you're fully present in the moment that has no purpose, that has no result, where you don't have anxiety about the future, you don't have regrets about the past, you're just fully involved in the process. You're like fully in love with it. And if you look at a lot of startups when they first started out in their garages, that's what they were doing. They were playing. You know, when Google started out with Sergey, they were just like, can we figure this out? Same thing with Bezos at the beginning. All of them were just messing around. And um, Stephen Johnson, this really awesome author of, of Wonderland, wrote, you know, you'll find the future where people are having the most fun. Right. And if you look at the companies that have been thriving during 2020, they were the they were, well, partly Google, but more like TikTok. Hulu, Disney Plus, Netflix, like many organizations that were willing to take risks and experiment and try new things out. Meanwhile, any of the older companies that that were like, well, I just can't I can't wait till we get back to normal. The concern with them is some of them were just going out of business because they were acting like Blockbuster. Right. They were acting like this old organization. Mm. Let me just keep doing sales the same way. Let me keep doing marketing the same way. And it's just like, this is not the same. You can't outreach to people sending your same LinkedIn, you know, you know, email, especially ignoring the fact that we're in the middle of a pandemic. Like you can't (laughs) do that, but people were doing that. Right. So we have to like, look at like, how do we, when I say play, I'm like, how do we embrace the idea of, of experimenting, of trying. So, so, sorry, so you said plays like um, being in the present and not thinking about the future and not thinking about the past, which is effectively mindfulness, isn't it? In that yeah, sense. yeah. So how, how does that make us more innovative, more creative and make us more like thriving? Well, so the reason why is because what happens is, what happens actually in your brain is, you go from a beta state to a flow state. And when that happens, you go through something called hypnofrontinality, where your inner critic actually begins to dissipate. That is the mean voice in your head that's like, this is a stupid idea, blah, blah, blah. That starts to, to 
to fade away and your implicit mind appears and you become highly creative. You get a shot of dopamine and you start seeing possibilities and all these opportunities that you didn't see before. Right. And this is, this is the realm of where we should be solving problems. Right. When we think of companies and we, and we think of brainstorm sessions, think about it. We get into a box room, sit, you know, around a box table. And then we're like, we have an hour. Let's hear the best ideas. Like you are not setting yourself up to create the atmosphere where you can actually experiment, play and try things out. So when I, when I say to team leaders, like, how do you infuse play? Think about your next project or your next challenge. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and embrace like, all right, this is what, this is the way we've always done it. I want to hear other ways in which to do it. And I am actually wanting you to be open to experimenting and possibly failing. And this is the part that's hard for a lot of leaders because they're like, oh, man, well, you know, we can't fail. You, you, you are not in the position right now, especially because of all the uncertainty, not to try to fail. Like because you need to learn this new normal. The new normal needs failure in that. And that's also a huge part of play because mm. it teaches about resiliency. It teaches about adaptability. And I think a lot of times we give lip service to failure or we give lip service to like taking risks, but then we don't actually do it. So mm. I think a lot of times we have to just look, ask a team leader, you know, what is it? Elizabeth Gilbert says, personal transformation doesn't happen un until you get tired of your own BS. You know, what B, what BS are you telling yourself as a leader right now that is preventing you from actually taking more risks and creating a psychologically safe space for your staff to also do that? And if you don't know if you have a psychologically safe space or not for your staff, ask them, can I say whatever I want in this group? Can I speak? Can I can I point issues out to um uh, other coworkers, right? Like when I'm talking about working with people and playing, I'm practicing how do you have hard conversations, mm. right? So the same thing happens in the remote space when I'm running workshops now. I'm like, all right, we're going to test out these, you know, hard conversations. We're going to break you out into groups of two or groups of four. And this is the conversation that you're going to have. Let's see if we can actually go there or not. Let's see if we can, let's see if we can navigate and feel what it's like to feel awkward because it's always clunky at the beginning when you're having a hard conversation. Like, hey, Chad, you know, every time you like talk in our meetings, you take up 80% of the meeting. That's why our meetings suck. You know, can we change that? <laughs> so, like, so, you, so you take them through a workshop that will get them to that place where they'll start being open and honest. And obviously, I guess you're really, I suppose, taking a risk in terms of pushing the boundaries of psychological safety there because they might not feel safe at all, might they? They might place. not. And that's like the thing where we navigate that because sometimes it's just about practice, right? Yeah. Sometimes like when we're running, when my colleague Gary Warren and I are running our Dealing with Toxicity at Work workshop, you know, we have them actually role play what it would be like to talk to that toxic person. Now, that toxic person might be part of the team. They might be in there, but we're not acknowledging that person directly. But we're like helping each and every person to practice. How do I have a conversation with someone where I'm not attacking their character, but I'm simply addressing their behavior and the impact that it's actually having on the team or having on, in the meeting or having on me? You know, and how am I setting my boundaries? Because if we can do that you know, and teach people how to set their boundaries, then we can do things like, hey, man, 
I saw that you sent an email at 7 p.m. at night. Nah, dude. Like, I, I'm looking out for you in the long run. Yes, and in order yeah. to do that, I have, I am telling you not to send them at 7 p.m. or 9 p.m. or midnight. And guess what? I'm going to do the same. Right. So it's like you actually have to back it up with action. Mm. So going back to the the mindfulness aspect and the and using play, what exercises do you do to get people into that place of being more mindful using your, your plays or techniques? Well, some of them, one of the workshops I run, um, Your Future is Where Your Fun Is, is, you know, we have them actually look back at what they love to do as a kid. Right. So, you know, I run this with my colleague, Lauren Yee, and she loved to play uh, sardines as a kid. It's reverse hide and seek, you know, where one person hides and another person hides and they all pack in like sardines. And there's one last person being like, where is everybody? And they're all giggling in the corner. Don't do it during COVID social distancing. But afterwards, you should try it. <laughs> even as adults, it's amazing. But what she identified when we broke down the values of that is she loved the fact that that it involved creativity, collaboration, and connection. Those were her play values. So then we like to then take those and be like, what is the aspects of my job right now that involve creativity, collaboration, and connection? You know, are there any people that are writers that are part of your team? Can they help contribute with some of the blog posts that are happening or some of the newsletter stuff? Are there any people that love being in front of camera and right now, like your content is really weak is there something they can do with this? And then again, this is not all of their time. We're talking about like one or two hours, but mm -hmm. them being allowed to do something creative, again, gets just two things. It first shows them that you care, that you're like, I see you and I actually care about you, right? And then the second thing that it does is it gives them an opportunity to have a little fun you know, you know, and have a little playground at work. So they start associating work with a fun place to be in. Mm. And right now, that's not the association we have, right? You know, we're at work 2,500 hours if you're working 50 hours a week. You know, you know, 2,500 hours, the whole year is only around seven to 8,000 hours. So if we're devoting that much time to work, shouldn't it be fun? Shouldn't some of this be fun, right? Some of it, I agree. I and totally then, agree. And then the other thing that you can take in consideration as a team leader is you should know the languages of appreciation of your staff. You know, what? how do they like to be appreciated? Do they like gifts, which is bonuses? Because if they like bonuses, studies have found don't give them just at the end of the year. If you give them, if you spread it out over the year, Whenever, especially when they do something great, that recognition motivates them to stay engaged. Do they like words of affirmation? Give them credit in front of their colleagues, recognize them to other staff, you know, other, you know, uh, team leaders, just so that they know that at some point they can move up in this company. Do they like acts of service? You know, hey, maybe they're going through something with their family and you contact them and you're like, hey, let me take this work off, you know, let me take this off you for just a little bit so that you can deal with that because I got your back. Take the rest of the day off. So when you're doing things like that and showing that you understand who they are, that level of engagement that you're showing causes them to be more engaged. And that's all with a play oriented mindset. 
I love it. I love that. And I love that using the, the sort of five love languages and it's often used more in a, a parenting approach with your children. Right. Um, but actually approaching people where somebody needs like quality time and that might be right. they, they they really value more of a one-to-one more than others. And you should have one-to-ones with everybody. But uh, using that as a really way of um, meeting their needs, but inspiring them and engaging with them. I, that's, right. I, mean, I, really I mean, let's even look at quality time. You can keep someone that loves quality time at a company by simply having lunch with them once a week, once a week or once every two weeks. Yeah. Over Zoom, that's it. That's it. Nothing else. And they'd be like, "Man, I really love this job because he's willing. This person's willing to take the time." So you just have to remember that a lot of these things that we're asking people to do, not that hard. Just not that hard. But it, it's 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 almost as a leader, it's stepping back a little bit and thinking about your team, thinking about as individuals who work for you, and uh, I guess making your approach them a bespoke customized to them as an individual, as you would with a client and a customer, you focus in that way. And I think we try to do broad brush stuff because that feels easy. We all go in this course. We all do this approach. Actually going to Mary, she really loves gifts. I'm going to give her bonuses or I'm going to give her a, a, you know, gift for a birthday or whatever it may be understanding their love languages and starting to create that or asking them, yeah, what, what is the thing they really love to do? And then bringing them involved in projects that perhaps they are more creative, but they're not in a role right now, but actually want you to get involved in this new uh, innovation project. We want to bring right. your creativity. And it's that sort of just bespoking it and looking out for your people and then looking them beyond where they are now, but looking beyond to their potential really, I guess as well. And now and- just to, to just, 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 just being the, call it devil's advocates you have that person or people who do you know what this play stuff this mindfulness stuff it's a a load of tosh i don't believe it i don't think it really works and so how do you get those sort of people who are i guess less likely to engage perhaps they're cynical perhaps they've had a bad experience of it how do you get them on board with this well so the thing that's interesting i hate forced fun all right i hate it I I hate the idea that you have to force people to enjoy themselves, right? So I consider play like, it's like a playground, right? And some people are playing and some people are not. So even when I'm running a lot of these workshops, some people are like, yeah, this is just not for me. Sweet. Just observe, stay on the outside and just hang out. And if you want to engage later on, awesome. But if you're not buying it, you don't have to at at the beginning. You know, a lot of times people don't buy the whole point of, of, taking risks and brainstorming and trying things out because they're scared because at their last few jobs, they got fired for that. So like, I get that. A lot of people have some trauma from back then. So I don't force that. I I simply work with the people that are willing and then everyone else can, can kind of observe because usually it's one or two people that are like, I'm just going to observe and be like, all right, let's do this. You know, but when they start to see that people are like actually taking risks and having harder conversations and, you know, and, and being more open, then they find themselves also doing it as well. It actually has a ripple effect, right? So like here are even some really easy suggestions that some team leaders can even do at their meetings, right? Just to make their meetings better, right? Um, from a play-oriented aspect. First, they don't have to be an hour. 
They just don't. Why are we making them an hour? It's such an arbitrary thing. End the meeting as soon as the meeting's over. Do the topic and then get off. It's 17 minutes, 25 minutes, whatever the number is, because that will also show that you're respecting people's time. Because when you do these longer meetings, then everyone knows, okay, this is the time in which I'm going to check my email and go on Facebook. And, and then you're wasting a lot of their time mm. as well as yours, right? So, so adjust your perspective on that. Second, and anyone can do this. It doesn't have to be the leader. You can actually prime the meeting before the meeting starts. So the first person that shares in a meeting sets the tone for the rest of the meeting. And I'm not talking about when the meeting begins. I'm talking about beforehand. So when someone's like, hey, look at my baby photos and what did you do this weekend? And they're like talking and it's really happy. You actually, the meeting is more productive according to a lot of studies. But if people are complaining beforehand mm -hmm. to start the meeting, it actually changes the energy. So no, at any level, you can actually change the energy of the room. And then third, if you're actually going to do a brainstorming session, embrace it with the improv of yes and where you're just yes ending for the whole meeting. We're going to have we're going to we're going to brainstorm to solve this really ridiculous tough problem, but we're yes ending meaning we're going to just take everyone's ideas, we're going to write them all on the board and I don't want to hear any criticism of, of them. I don't want to hear that we did it before. Mm -hmm. I don't want to hear any. We're just yes ending each other. We're just building off of each other. And it's such a more positive brainstorming meeting. Mm -hmm. And then later on, you can look at that list and circle the ones that most resonate. Instead of it being this, this meeting of negation and, and people doing their ego and just being like, your idea sucks and your idea sucks. It's like no one wants to share. And then mm -hmm. again, another time where you're wasting time. So you can infuse these small little tips of fun to create a more psychologically safe way to run your meetings. Brilliant. They're really good advice, uh, Jeff. And just I want to just get your thoughts on this year. Really. What are your thoughts on what the big thing we need to sort of, I guess, focus on as leaders in organizations and just as from your experience in the last sort of 12 months or so? Shared humanity. Humanity, dude, like we need to be asking our staff how they're doing and not in the cliche way, but being like, Hi, how, how is this, right? We need to have shared humanity and transparency of what's going on with our organizations. I think a lot of staff are struggling to be like, how's the company doing? What's the company? And even if that leader doesn't fully know, simply being like, hey, I don't really know, you know, what's going on with us. We're trying to figure it out, you know, but I'm here with you. I, you know, I'm in the trenches with you and whatever I know, I will share with you, right? Mm. Like a certain level of transparency, a certain level of humanity, um, mm. a certain level of, of willingness to show vulnerability as a leader mm. will go a longer way in building trust and creating that psychological safe workplace that you want rather than us like basically right now being close to the chest and, and just, and and connecting as little as possible because that's what I'm seeing already is people are like, oh, well, they're remote. So I don't want to, I don't want to bother my staff. Oh, they're, they're, but they, they actually want to hear from you, you know, and yes. the less you actually connect with them, you know, not in a forced way, but in a real authentic way, the less you're doing that, the more likely they're going to leave. Brilliant. I like that. Yeah. Be more human and people who work for you are humans as, as well as yourself. And I guess being more mindful of that. Um, I really thank you for being on today. It's been 
delight as it always is with you and uh, your advice, your inputs and all your, what you've shared. Um, if people are interested in how they can engage with you, uh, what's the best way of getting in touch? Yeah, so simply go to rediscoveryourplay.com. You can click on the Let's Play button, and I have a bunch of activities you can actually apply at work. And then you can hop on a phone with me, and we can figure out how we can create a psychologically safe, fun workplace for your staff. Brilliant. Thank you, Jeff. Appreciate that. Thanks so much for having me. If you like this episode, then please do subscribe, do share with your friends, and do check out other episodes in the series. If you're looking for support and help in your organization to create a resilient culture, then please do get in contact with me on julianrobertsconsulting.com. Thank you.